0: The meditation teacher who says, like, you have to meditate for 20 minutes a day. And the student says, but what about when I'm too busy? And the teacher says, well, then you need to meditate for 30 minutes a day, right? It's true. It embodies a deep truth, but it's not a truth that is comfortable to enact. And I think getting a handle on that, right? The fact that we're all a bit workaholic in the modern era, in maybe not all, but lots of us who are not necessarily classic workaholics... And even if we, it would be okay for us to get up and leave our work behind at 6 p.m. instead of 8 p.m., we kind of don't want to. We'd rather keep trying to push through to this mythical point where we can say, it's all done. <laughs> and since that's never happening, we need to learn to step away at a time when it isn't all done. Culture first. Culture
1: first.
0: Culture first. 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 Culture first.
1: I'm your host Damon Klotz, and you are listening to Culture First, a podcast where you'll hear stories about why being intentional about your company culture can create a better world of work. Once I've finished this, I'll have time for that. I would love to. I'm just too busy. When I finally, then I'll be able to. Have you ever caught yourself uttering similar sentiments regarding time management? It's okay. I know I have. I've probably said one of those this week. Our relationship with time and the perpetual quest for control are themes that I'm sure resonate with many of you listening. Even talking about the subject of time management can lead to feeling overwhelmed. Enter Oliver Berkman, the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. In his book, Oliver delves into the profound concept of our mortality and how it shapes our perspective on time. This conversation will help us create a better relationship and story about the decisions that we make with our time, and in particular, shed a light about how we deal with our life at work. I do believe with the way that our work and life are overlapping more than ever, talking about these subjects in relationship to work is not only refreshing, it's essential. Oliver and I have a really fruitful conversation, but there's a few key concepts I want you to really listen out for. Embracing your limitations. The idea of waiting for perfect control. How to be aware of the productivity trap. The joy of seeking novelty in the mundane. And then you'll hear Oliver and I discuss whether his term strategic underachievement that he wrote about may have accidentally started that quiet quitting trend. Before we head over to my conversation with Oliver, I have a request for you. I have all of the data or data on how many times people start and stop these podcast episodes. Out of the hundreds of thousands of people who've listened to this show, I know that there's a couple of different personas of people. There's the serial listeners who have consumed every minute, and then there's the others who have probably started and stopped one episode 10, 12, maybe even 15 times now. The reason I bring this up is because a few weeks ago, Oliver wrote an essay for the New York Times. It was entitled, Stop Multitasking. No, really, just stop it. It was a powerful essay about the extraordinary power of and difficulty of doing one thing at a time. So my ask for you is this, what is stopping you from just listening to this conversation from start to finish and seeing how you feel after? All right, that's my challenge. Let's head over to my conversation with Oliver. Oliver, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much.
1: We first met last year because I invited you to speak at Culture First, which is the global event that Culture Amp puts on. And when I'm shortlisting speakers, there's usually a list of people who kind of enter my inbox in my world who are very much putting out content and writing for the world of work. And then there's this other list of people whose work is maybe somewhat adjacent to the world of work. An example might be an author who's written about mortality, but... To me, I think your work cuts through to the very core about the how, the why, the what, the when and sort of the where of work right now and I kind of just wanted to open up by sort of saying why I found your work so interesting and why I thought it was of interest to an, you know, an audience of HR listeners and managers and I think for me why your work originally kind of stood out is because I feel like your book was written for the type of people who might typically run as far as possible away from self-help books, because (laughs) it was more of a philosophical approach to time management, which is very much my kind of productivity book. And it did remind me a lot of Alain de Botton's work when he kind of spoke about things like travel, work and love, and he invited you to be in conversation with the topic instead of sort of telling you its definition. So firstly, I just wanted to say thank you for writing a Book and for your work that I think is very much a part of the world of work, and I wonder if anyone's ever had that comparison to um, Alan Botton's work before, and um, in conversation with your work.
0: Uh, yeah, definitely, it's come up, and I'm and I've uh, I'm a huge admirer of uh, of Alan's work, so it's a, it's a really great it's really great company to to be in. I suppose the part of it that really resonates with me, and that I am really trying to embody, is. Yeah, it's like here we are having this conversation, trying to figure out this business of being human, of which you know work is an incredibly important central part. As opposed to, like, yeah, I've got all the answers, and now you, lucky, lucky uh, mortals, get to listen to me tell you how to how to live. That doesn't. It, it, uh, firstly, I don't know how to live, and secondly, it doesn't work anyway, right? That's a completely ineffective way of of, of dealing with things. If I am doing something, I guess one way of thinking, I like to think about it is I'm articulating, maybe making conscious things that we do all already know about our finite capacity, about the nature of work, about the nature of our interactions with other people. It's not news, but it can be news in the sense that we put quite a lot of effort into um, not thinking about things. And uh, so it's sort of a gentle prod in the direction of thinking about them, I suppose. Given all that, should we start this episode with the warning for the listeners about the
1: existential overwhelm they might be experiencing while listening to this episode? Should you give your normal sort of listener warning?
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. The warning is always like you can, uh, my my whole job, I feel like, I didn't, not sure I really chose it, but my, my whole job is to sort of go around trying to trigger existential crises in people about how how short life is, 4,000 weeks title of the book obviously is the approximate lifespan, uh, of a human in the modern world. Um, but also then sort of running after them as saying like, no, no, this is a really good existential crisis to go through. It's, it's, it's relaxing and it's empowering. It's not, um, it's, it's not something that, uh, you should, uh, regret, uh, having, having had to experience because, um, When you truly understand how big is the mismatch between our finite capacities and all the things we could, in theory, be doing, that is actually the beginning of being able to take effective action and do so calmly. It's not a not a despairing uh, thing at all. So, given that, uh, I guess that listener warning and kind of how I've
1: experienced your work. Um, one of the traditions we have on the show is that there's always a question I ask every guest to kind of lay the foundation of, um, I guess your work and in a way that maybe anyone who's listening could understand, but there's a little bit of a catch with this question. Basically, this is the situation. A curious 10 year old has come up to you while you're on a hike in the English countryside and they ask you, what do you
0: do for work? How do you answer? I mean, the honest truth in a very mundane way, my response to that question is, I write books. Um, even that's kind of interesting to me now I think about it because I do a whole lot of other things, and, and yet I guess that that is the bit I am think of as the centerpiece or the linchpin or that I'm proudest of or something. If pushed by this inquisitive 10-year-old, I might say that I write books about... Um, what it's like to be a human or something, right? <laughs> it's something to do with capturing experience. I'd probably stop there. And then say, so, where are your parents? What are you doing uh, wandering across <laughs> the English country? So?
1: Yes, there's this uh, child out, out there asking all these people <laughs> what they do for work because they're already feeling the existential dread about how to, how do they make a good decision about what to do with their career, right? So let's start with your book, um, with the book Four Thousand Weeks, your your current one, and mm-hmm. um, maybe I can start by I guess reading an excerpt from the very first page of the book because. Uh, You don't waste any time really setting the scene for people here. So on the uh, first page of the book, you've got scientists estimate that life in some form will persist for another 1.5 billion years or more until the intensifying heat of the sun condenses the last organism to death. But you, assuming to live until you're 80, you'll have had about 4,000 weeks. And the rare few lucky enough to live to 100 will see only 5,000. Now, When I read that, I was kind of straight away reflecting um, in terms of my own experience with this subject, which is a little bit like a coin. On one side, I think some of my friends would describe me as probably one of the most present people they know. I truly find beauty in like the simplest of moments from the way the sun hits a building to the joy of sharing a meal with friends and, um, you know, I spent... Seven of the sort of last eight years overseas living as an expat. And honestly, one of the things I missed the most was just being able to do really mundane tasks like, you know, driving my grandma somewhere for an appointment. Mm. And if that is one side of the coin that I reflected on when I, I first read that in your book, I guess on the other side of that coin is I can often find myself staring into the abyss, absolutely frozen by the fear of this idea that I'm going to die. <laughs> and it completely stops me in my tracks. So, I wonder: is my coin analogy of knowing that life is beautiful and it's all the simple things, and also this fear that, like, holy shit, this we only get one go and this is it? Is that a typical response?
0: I mean, I think so, and I don't think that those are. Yeah, the coin analogy is good because they are part of the same thing. It's not like you've got two. It's not. They're not contradictory. The the sort of ability to cherish those very mundane, precious moments sort of rests on an understanding that in some sense they're they're finite, I think. Because otherwise, you know, I'm certainly not the first person to say it, but I do say it in the book, quoting various other people. If life went on uh, in an earthly sense, you know, forever, um, it would devalue present moment experience quite heavily because... Um, you know that that feeling that we sometimes fall into of having all the time in the world um would be true we would have all the time in the world and there would be no um there'd be no need to take any given moment seriously what i really like about the way you described that just then is that you know it gets at something i'm trying to say and maybe sort of pummel the reader into seeing which is that the the shortness of life is not an argument in my understanding for, um, trying really hard to pack every second of your experience with the most extraordinary things you can think of. Um, that, that attitude actually is still a little bit in denial. That attitude is still a little bit, well, maybe there's kind of a cheat code to the human condition here. And, and if it isn't that I can live forever, maybe it is that I can have like the most amazing life of anyone. Um, it's actually an argument really for seeing all the value in those those smaller moments for or not even having a sense of moments as being big or small, right? I mean it's just it's just that you're here and that's precious and not something to stress out about. Listen, I'm not saying I am totally reconciled to my mortality or anything. I'm I'm talking in I've written a book about the kind of person I'd like to be in some in some ways. <laughs> but it's but it it's seeing that uh You know, this is grounds for relaxing. When you see that, you know, there are always going to be more ambitions you could have than you're going to be able to fulfill, more places you could visit than you're going to be able to visit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's an argument for like relaxing back into the few that you're actually doing and really showing up for driving your relative somewhere instead of spending all that time pining for what you could be doing at the same time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it keeps me very uh, regulated holding both of those things on that same coin, Um, you know, being able to appreciate beauty but also that there is an element of unknown and also, you know, that finitude. And I guess a lot of the foundations for this book, you know, came from a column that you wrote at The at the Guardian. And the column was, uh, also I think you should probably work in marketing because you have great copywriting ability. The column was, this column will change your life. Right. Um, and, you, and you said that you spent a lot of your career then kind of explaining back to people that there was a little bit of satire and then it ended yes. up actually becoming educational for you and you became an accidental productivity kind of expert. So I guess, what was it about, I guess, your experience and your work as a journalist that kind of even got you into that moment where your editor said would you write this column and that I was now led to this whole career where you're really focusing on these
0: topics of you know productivity happiness and mortality Yeah, I mean, I guess you can go in either direction, can't you? You can say, like, well, I found myself in these situations. I was kind of interested in self help. My editor saw me reading these books and thought she might as well get some content out of my fixation. Or you can flip it around and say that, like, what we do for work very often, if to the extent that our, you know, socioeconomic good fortune allows us to act on it, is an attempt to, like, work out our deepest issues, right? We use our lives as therapy in a totally I think ultimately legitimate sense, so you know, if I wanted to talk in slightly uh new agey terms, I would say that something led me to really focus on wanting to write, and actually, looking back at my career, I can see various junctures where I could have maybe made a bit more money in this direction or done something more exciting in that direction, but I chose the thing that would let me would let me write. I also then put myself into a situation where like there were really fast deadlines and where the kind of perfectionistic part of me that could quite happily spend two months writing a 600 word newspaper column had absolutely no possibility of doing that. Right. And if, and if a weekly column, you know, and a weekly column is due on a Thursday and you don't have a really good idea by Monday, then you just have to go with a bad idea instead. And, um, and Mm. you learn that you don't really know what good ideas and bad ideas are anyway, because it's just as likely to lead to a successful column or not. Um, and, you know, I had all sorts of hang-ups about that sort of deadline thing as well. I got very anxious and stressed about it, but it was very useful to sort of learn the discipline. Um, and then, yeah, I managed to like finagle this a uh, situation where I was writing a column about the sort of issues of time and obligation and struggling to fit things in and feeling like I needed to do more in order to be like, in order to sort of justify my existence. So all these kind of quite deep therapy type issues. No more extraordinary than anyone else's, I think. But I was just really lucky to have these opportunities to kind of explore them head on as the thing I was doing with my day job. Yeah, which was great. And then, you know, it's very useful just in a more instrumental way to have a sort of short regular column as it is to do a blog or anything where you can sort of experiment and test out ideas and see how they build into the things that might make, Larger works like a book. It is
1: interesting when we find ourselves in a position where we're kind of experiencing some of that live therapy that ends up helping us a lot, but we're kind of doing it in service of others. I know you've been a guest on um, Stephen Bartlett's show, Diary of a CEO, and he sort of said that you know a lot of his you know work on that podcast is really helping him understand things. And um, you know, even on this show during the pandemic, we did a um, at the start of the pandemic, we did a series called Working Through It, where I was. Interviewing experts with the questions that I had every single week for 13 weeks about our experience working in this unknown environment. And, you know, it really forced me to kind of have to reflect. And I, was saying the other day, I struggled. I struggled to listen back to it because I really was working out loud on some of the hardest things that I was trying to, you know, experience as someone living in a foreign country during a pandemic. And um, obviously, that column has also played that role for you as well. So it's just interesting when we sort of do some of this work on behalf of trying to serve for others, but ultimately, it also does really help ourselves when we spend the time journaling and reflecting on it.
0: Absolutely, and it's just—I'm always amazed at how synergistic it is. How sort of, um, you know, if you're ever worried about as a writer anyway, if you're ever sort of worried about uh, admitting to some way in which you don't have it together or something like that, I sometimes I'm like, well, if I write about this issue in my email newsletter, will people finally be like, oh no, this, this guy's just crazy. <laughs> but obviously always that kind of sharing turns out to be really helpful for other people as well. So there is just this like ongoing process of sharing all the ways that we're all in the same boat, basically, that I think is really Is really uh, powerful. Yeah.
1: So I wanted to spend a large part of this conversation. You know, like I said, when I first invited you to speak at Culture First, it really was because I saw so many of the topics that you were writing about playing out in the workplace. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to. um, It'd be very easy for me just to use this as a great chance for us to catch up and talk about. You know, my current thoughts on my own mortality, but um, I wanted to centre this part really on, I guess. There's a group of people out there, leaders inside of organizations who are currently managing mortals and they might not understand how to manage people who are dealing with their mortality. So if you're a leader out there who's currently managing a team of people who are mortal, this section's for you. So Hmm. I want to just start by, I guess, you've talked a lot about acknowledging the impossible number of demands that are placed on us in the modern world of work. What do you say to the person who replies and saying that, look, in my current situation i actually do have to handle an impossible amount i don't have any luxury of giving up the struggle to do it
0: all so right. you know that advice just doesn't make sense for me it's such a totally understandable reaction and it's understandable because like i think it or catch myself thinking it you know uh to this day about my you know incoming work i think the sort of the tough love way into this is to say if you have an impossible amount on your plate, in other words, if the things that are expected of you at a certain and the standard that's expected is, is just is is not possible, like for real, then it doesn't matter how much you think you have to do it, right? Because that's what the word impossible means. And it's actually similar to saying like, well, I absolutely have to make two plus two add up to five. Like it, it doesn't and and that's not going to be happening. And so it isn't a question of saying, uh, uh, I can't afford to make sacrifices and trade-offs. It's about saying, I will be doing that anyway. My situation means that I will be doing that anyway. This organization will be doing it anyway. Something will get deprioritized as a result of prioritizing something else. The only question is whether we're going to do that consciously and humanely and in such a way that we all get to sort of talk about what's happening and then really focus on what we've chosen to prioritize and not feel too bad about the things that we're going to have to at least temporarily neglect or if we're going to exist in this constant state of trying to convince ourselves and each other and the whole organization that in fact there exists some way of prioritizing everything and only uh, only sort of shaving off things that were inessential as opposed to what I think we all have to do as humans and in organizational life, which is see that there are more genuinely meaningful and important things to do with our time than we have time to do. It's not just that if you get rid of the, the sort of chaff, then you've got all the time you need for what matters. It's that you need to get rid of or back burner. Some things that legitimately, uh, you could say matter. Um, so, you know, then that person can come back and say, well, it's easy for you to say because, you know, I push this thought experiment to an extreme. Maybe this person feels that they'll be fired and have no ability to live in a home and feed their kids if they mm. don't do the impossible. Then the then the response is like, Yeah, yeah, it is easy for me to say. Lots of lots of things are easy for me to say. Doesn't mean they're not true. And mm. and in the case of the idea that a, a finite person cannot do uh, an infinite amount or, or any impossible amount that remains true, even though it's harder for some people to have to experience than it is for me. Um, that doesn't actually me- mean that there's got to be a way around it. So it's kind of bleak, but, but the bleakness is the beginning of the answer, right? Because especially as leaders, I think if people can acknowledge and model and in all these different ways, not pretend That the people they're managing and leading ought to be able to solve impossible problems, then everything can change. And then we get to do things that the other kind of impossible, right? Which the other objection comes in sometimes like, well, all sorts of technological breakthroughs, things that people thought were impossible. And if people hadn't aimed to do the impossible, we might not have all these amazing breakthroughs to which the answer is yeah, right they obviously weren't impossible not in the sense we're talking here they were possible um and in almost all cases if you look into the background stories of how those things came to be it was because people were willing to not attempt to get their arms around an impossible quantity of things and to focus on on these extremely ambitious but in fact not impossible goals I guess if that's one of the questions that
1: people are holding in terms of there's just so much stuff to do or there's no way I can let anything go, in that same team, in that same organization, there's going to be a bunch of people who, if we're using your term, are just clearing the decks constantly Mm. and, you know, spending as much time as possible with everything else that's going around as opposed to, I guess, maybe doing the core work of the moment. I know you had some really good examples of clearing the decks um, in terms of what people are doing in their personal life. Do you have any examples or thoughts on
0: what clearing the decks looks like in the modern workplace right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, clearing the decks, uh, the way I think of that term is it's to do with how you're relating to the activities, right? So it's to do with the sense that these are things you've just got to get out of the way first in order to get to the point where you can start being proactive and start doing the things that you really care about. And obviously... Email inboxes are just the most obvious example of that. But really anything that functions in that way is a bucket that collects stuff, right? So um it's it's email, but it can be all sorts of um pending requests from people. It can be whole projects that um for whatever reason have come to be things that just like you've got to get to the other side of them before you can before you can get to the to the next thing. It's the part of their of work that people think of as the admin and the paperwork if they're not you know admin professionals if they're if they're the stuff that they see as kind of like well this is what keeps it all going and on some level it maybe does right it's not that you can neglect that stuff completely but that if you approach it as first of all each day or first of all in my career i'm going to get all this stuff out of the way uh you never get there the decks are never clear and you expend all your energy sort of on the things that by definition you're saying are are kind of secondary to the thing you 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 want to be doing there's also this kind of mysterious force just on the level of personal motivation it's not totally mysterious there are some there's some sort of research about it but that if you focus on clearing the decks then you're you're stuck in this mode of like reactivity okay it's like everything is coming at you you've got to deal with it and you're never making that um that change in favor of sort of behavioral activation you're never doing the thing where you decide to do something first because it's Mm. important to you and your priorities and whenever you can actually flip that whenever you can begin the day say just to give an ordinary daily example by by spending the first hour or something working on something where you're choosing it and you're deliberately tolerating the anxiety of knowing that the decks are not clear while you do this, it actually seems to make you more effective at, you know, clearing the decks too. Not ever getting them clear, but dealing with your email and your incoming stuff, because there's a total sort of mental switch from just being reactive to being proactive, that then carries forward into those other activities. And it all starts, you know, the reason it connects to my big thesis about being finite is that it all starts from understanding that there's just no reason to believe the decks will ever be clear. There's no, there's no law that says you should only get as many emails as you can answer in a couple of hours a day or anything like that. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, when it's all said and done, when
1: it's all over, like that inbox, our, our digital footprint lives on. There'll be still people emailing us, still newsletters that we never unsubscribed to, still contacting us. So it's like you really need to kind of focus on what's in front of you at the moment. And I guess, you know, that's one of the things that you speak about is like not only learning how to say no to things that you don't want to do in the workplace, but also learning how to say no to some of the things that you might be really good at as well. Because you're trying to I guess you know shift focus onto different priorities, or like you said, doing some of that work for yourself first as opposed to the, the reactionary work, and you know things like Slack and Microsoft teams are really good at keeping us distracted and clearing the decks on other people's priorities
0: Oh yeah, right, absolutely, and pushing it even further and seeing that in a sense, you already are saying no, you're just doing it kind of implicitly, unconsciously, passive aggressively, and so we're just again talking about like the, the the switch from unconsciously doing what we must do as finite humans to consciously doing it, and therefore you know making some better choices and feeling better about them. Well
1: being is obviously of great um, you know I would like to think well being is always of great concern to leaders, but I think over the last few years with the different working environments, the amount of work people are doing for those you know people who have been working remotely, um, and I guess one of the ways that we're finding ourselves you know, I guess right now is that a lot of companies are trying to find short-term success due to some of the economic pressures, especially, you know, for a lot of people who work at technology companies or startups, there's been a whole bunch of pressure on sort of short-term success. And, you know, a lot of tech companies use things like sprints and quick win projects in order to get ahead. And yeah. I wonder whether you think this kind of work style and working in in sprints or agile working ways Is that helping people focus on the task at hand, or do you think that this is just another way to get team members to take on even more work in a short space of time and increase the risk of burnout?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, I don't, I maybe don't know enough um, to say like how commonly this is being used in one way rather than another. I think what it makes me see is that for this kind of organizational level, team level strategy, the same thing applies as applies to uh, all sorts of individual time management techniques like the the fabled Pomodoro technique where you divide your work into 25-minute slots and, and, and all sorts of other techniques. And it's this, it's that there's nothing inherently right or wrong about most of these techniques. I mean, there are probably a few bad ones on the fringes, but it, it, it's entirely a question of the spirit in which they are... Um, engaged right it's entirely to do with what you're trying to get out of them and if you i'll switch back to the team level in a minute but if you're if you're dividing your time into pomodoros or some other kind of way of time boxing in order to sort of bring a sane relationship between the time you have and the priorities you want to choose so you can make go through that process of mapping them out and then calmly work through them fantastic if you're using it because you think that this now is the is the method which if you really bring more self discipline to it than you've ever had before and you really bear down on it finally you're going to make yourself into the kind of person who is infinitely productive and capable then that's just enabling you right that's just enabling your your issues rather than uh, helping you through them and i think the same applies to things like sprints because um yeah if it's if it's all based on this notion that a, a moment must be seized and a competitive edge must be obtained now um, in order to for it to be plain sailing later then uh, I, I think that is falls prey to all the same problems and is going to sort of exert all the same anxieties and stresses on the people on the people doing it it's it's to get to something specific in the future where we won't have to make Tough decisions about time, or something like that, and then that will just fuel the flywheel of anxiety. Do you fuel flywheels? I'm not sure. Anyway, you know, it will just make the <laughs> make the whole will ramp the whole thing up. If, on the other hand, you know, it's a question of saying the decks will never be clear. Uh, we've only got finite capacity, but we choose for the next days, weeks to bring all our finite capacities to bear on on this challenge, then you can immediately connect to a kind of spirit of fun, right? That's why you're, that's why you're, you're doing it for almost because it's fun to do it. Even though we don't like to talk about things like fun in this context. And, (laughs) and like, actually, if you want, based on whatever amount I know about building a, um, a successful organization and you know uh, there's a certain scale of organization that i don't claim to have experience running or anything like that but like you want to be harnessing the power of fun right you don't want to be saying um you have to sort of push back against that and resist it you want to be getting into that space where the things people want to do that where the energy naturally arises can be allied with the goals you're trying to meet it's otherwise it's like saying we're going to try and achieve this uh milestone without using electricity or something right i mean you you want Mm. to bring all those forces to bear and and that can only really be done with more focus on well-being and presence in the moment and you know what the big questions of why we're all doing any of this in the first place Culture First means Culture Amp. I'm Didier Elzinger, co-founder and CEO. Together with thousands of customers around the globe, we're co-creating a better world of work. That means enabling leaders to drive their most impressive performance outcomes with real-time insights, data, and predictions. Our podcast is called Culture First because when you get culture right, your business succeeds at a rate never thought possible. Join us at cultureamp.com to see what it's all about.
1: I guess one of the other uh, strategies that you know companies are, are using in terms of prioritization and language that I've heard is this idea of you know doing less but doing better. Mm-hmm. And I guess by you know it's very easy to throw a thousand things at the wall and go, "Here's all the things that we could do, and let's do them all," as opposed yeah. to picking a few things. Um, do you have advice for companies, especially you know, if you think about maybe some of the current context of you know the amount of layoffs happening around the world, people are going to be finding themselves that there is now definitely less people around mm-hmm. to do some of that work but there is still a high expectation on doing good work in order to keep companies going. Yeah, what advice would you have for someone who might be working on a team where there is now literally less people around to do that work but they are being told that
0: they need to do better quality work? I mean, again, I guess it's a question of whether you're Focusing on the situation of the person who is receiving sort of incoming stream of demands that exceed their their uh, capacities to do those things well. And there I think, you know, there's a lot to be, it, it, this is slightly borrowing from work of Cal Newport, I think really, but there's lots to be said for um, for anything that you can do in your position in an organization to start those conversations, the kind of conversations that have to do with saying like, I'm really excited about putting this on the front burner so naturally we're going to need to talk about what goes on the back burner as well in order to in order to make that happen if it's if it's someone with more authority it can be as a matter of communicating this directly that you 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 do not expect um, uh, that in in communicating priorities you do expect there to be posteriorities you know things that things that get set aside in order to focus I think one thing that I don't quite I'd have to think about how you operationalize this in different contexts, but one thing that is incredibly valuable has been for me is any sort of strategy that you can that you can implement that that allows you a little bit of time to see the results of working in this more sort of in this calmer, more finitude accepting way is really powerful. Like if you can. If you can build it into your personal practice or to a company's practice to sort of come back and see what happened after a couple of weeks of taking a saner, uh, more realistic approach to email, figuring out how many people actually were, you know, a- a- how many actual crises really did happen, how people responded to the idea that 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 a reaction that the response to an email might not be instantaneous, but it would be reliable, you know, it would be within the next day or two days or whatever, and, and, and as opposed to it being completely immediate. Anything that you can do to sort of treat this way of working as an experiment in itself, it, it seems to me always so quick, the evidence, <laughs> that that what you fear is going to go wrong if you work in this way uh, uh, doesn't, doesn't go wrong and that lots of things go right. Of course, if you're the most junior person on a team, that otherwise doesn't think this way, this is a challenge. There's no point shying away from that, right? You can't just uh, you, you can't revolutionize the whole thing all on your own. But uh, I think that's at the essence of it, probably.
1: One of the other subjects that I wanted to touch on um, that I think, uh, are you familiar with the term quiet quitting, which has been written about a lot over the last sort of 12 to 18 months?
0: I'm certainly familiar with it, but it seems to have many different nuances and definitions. So if we're going to talk about it, I'd love to know what, what, you, what you're meaning by it specifically I suppose
1: yeah I guess it's it's the um, the way that I'm kind of seeing it being positioned at the moment in terms of the workplace context is this idea that uh, when there was plenty of jobs going around people might just feel comfortable you know going off and finding a, a new job straight away but the current idea is as the you know economy is shrinking in many different markets the idea that people are kind of doing enough to get by, but like still staying in their current job and kind of not going above and beyond for the current employer. Mm-hmm. But they might not necessarily have something lined up right now. And in some ways it's a little bit of a pushback to maybe some of the overworking that we saw happening at the start of the pandemic when, you know, the average workday was increasing by not just minutes by hour but by hours in in some cases. So I was wondering whether you wrote about this idea of strategic underachievement which is you know identify all the low return activities that you must do to uphold your responsibilities at home or work and then ask yourself what is the absolute bare minimum that you can do in order to make time <laughs> right. for what matters most do you feel any do you feel any part responsible for this idea of these quiet quitters going around finding the bare minimum to do inside of the workplace right now
0: uh, well, uh, gosh, maybe I don't know. Uh, one thing that always intrigues me about this idea of quiet quitting is it doesn't seem to. Is it always meant to be a prelude to then just kind of eventually resigning, or is it just meant to be? Is it is it just a way of sort of working to rule and doing lots of other things with your with your life as for as long as you can get away with it? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of just people are a bit a bit checked out, and they they haven't actually right. quit the org- organization, but right. they're not exactly trying to achieve any more. And you know, there's. Different sort of memes going around that you know people who haven't received you know pay rises or anything for a long time are like, well, I'm just reducing how much I work right. down to basically
0: what you're paying me in the market right. economy right now. Right, right. I mean, so there's two there's two sort of senses in which this idea of strategic underachievement gets used, and one of them is pretty uh, overtly meant in a comical way. This idea of like, you know, if you uh, if you really hate changing the toner on the office photocopier. This is a anecdote from a time when we all were mainly in the office. I suppose if you really hate changing the toner on the office photocopy, then just do it once. Do it incredibly badly, and nobody will ever ask you to do it again, right? So there's a kind of um, there's a kind of uh, obnoxious way in which you can uh, push tasks onto other people, not by refusing to do them, but by doing them willingly and then screwing them up. Um, the other sense in which I think this this concept has some more has more more value is just. Again, coming from the lens of finite capacities, understanding that you know you are going to not be operating at a hundred percent on every imaginable dimension in life at any given time, you uh, it's not possible for me to give all that I feel I want to give to my to my writing work, which in this case you know it's work I really care about, so it's a little bit different from some of the quiet quitting cases. But and at the same time, give all the time I want to give to being in the, my six-year-old son's life, right? Because that would on some level be every waking hour. That, he'd probably hate that, but you know, um, in principle, we want to do everything all the time. And so being strategic about which dials you're turning down to what degree for how long is actually really important. If I could say to myself, well, look, for the next couple of months, because of all these important deadlines, and obviously with my wife's cooperation, if I'm going to be a bit less present as a parent for a couple of months, but then I'm going to consciously switch that balance later on, and that, that makes sense to do it. Like That's a much less stress-free and much less stressful and more efficacious way of balancing these priorities. It's like, okay, I'm not actually going to be excelling in like I'd like to in this field right now, because that's coming uh, later. And so it's difficult to sort of condemn outright somebody who says look you know i'm i think i can get the results that keep me employed in this job by by dialing that down and and upping something else in my in my life i think where it clearly becomes kind of well it becomes an issue for an organization obviously where the where it's not sort of possible to understand the results that are coming, and like on one level, if if somebody can do their job excellently uh, on a few hours of work a week, there's an argument for saying they should be fully permitted to do so. If they're not doing it excellently, then that's the same challenge as in any other context where somebody's not doing their job excellently, and uh, you know the same set of ways of dealing with that and responding to it seem to be uh, open in the in the quiet quitting case, I can't help thinking of it from the perspective of the the quiet quitter and saying that in a lot of cases, to the extent that this phenomenon is real, this must be not because somebody is saying, well, look, I love my job and I love my personal life, but I've decided to shift the balance. But because they're saying I, I'm i not getting meaning from this, mm. from this job, uh, I can't quite face trying to uh, reorder my life in such a way that I can make money doing something that i that i love so i'm just gonna um you know ease up on it to the extent possible the problem is that this is no way to live right people have to and in some ways people in much less fortunate socioeconomic situations have always had to right you do there are lots of jobs in the world that are that it would be great if people didn't have to do um nobody i assume loves doing them for themselves but they're doing them because supporting their family is meaningful to them and you know living in the house they live in is meaningful to them uh, for one reason or another. So, you know, that the, the hope would surely be in those cases that, that you could um, rethink work in ways that it wasn't something that had to be minimized because it was not meaningful. It still mm. has to be uh, proportionately sized relative to being finite as a human being but um you know i think i think i guess the 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 tough question i'd want to ask myself if i was a leader in an organization with a lot of quiet quitting going on is like what's missing from that work that um that makes this the the, the right strategy to take i don't know some slightly ill-defined thoughts there, but maybe they're maybe they're thought provoking in some way. Well, we won't put
1: on paper that uh it, it was it was your book which inspired all these people <laughs> to uh start
0: quiet quitting around the world I, did and you do know a handful of people who have loudly or not unquietly quit as a result, they say, of um oh, wow. of reading the book. But I think that uh I think that's a question of helping them articulate things they already believed. I don't think it has this kind of um like magic power <laughs> to, 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 to reduce the uh, workforce of companies. That wouldn't be very a good thing if it did.
1: I was just imagining these employees were being asked to like, you know, do these tasks that they don't want to do and they're walking around going, well, I'm actually strategic underachieving on that because it's, uh, right, right, people yes. told me it's a coping <laughs> mechanism to deal with my own mortality, so I'm actually not going to be doing that today. <laughs> one of the um, other subjects that I think that you wrote about which doesn't really get discussed Enough, I think, in the workplace is how hard it is for for people to actually find time for rest. And um, you know, if you look at all the different studies based on the amount of time taken off in places like the U.S. versus Europe versus um, Asia Pacific, you know, the time really is very different based on the sort of the economy and the market that you're working in. And when times are tough economically, it's very easy to start. Working later, let it encroach on other activities that are important to you, and maybe even delay things like time off. Mm-hmm. So, my personal take on that is, you know, when the world is asking more from us, I'd argue that leisure and rest time is actually even more important. Mm-hmm. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on how you're seeing, you know, this topic of rest play out in the current market economy, and you know, is there any way to make it easier for people to actually learn that recharge and and and, and rest is what we need in order to actually work better and be able to kind of make the most of our time.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, this is absolutely on point and it's always something that I have sort of personally struggled with as well. I think it uh, in a number of different ways, right, there are big, big socioeconomic forces pushing us against resting. There's also this kind of instrumentalization of rest where, um, you know, You even hinted at it yourself about how we need to rest in order to work better. And we do, right? You will work better if you rest. But one hopes that that's not the only reason that we're spending some of our life in recreation, but that it could be for itself, Um, the value of the activity itself. And then thirdly, there's the fact that we sort of collaborate with this. We find it, anyone who's sort of moderately at least driven and ambitious in their lives in the modern world finds it quite hard to rest. It's not just that we're being stopped from doing it. It's that we kind of feel antsy and restless when we when we when we try um so i think you know yeah a starting point is to see that although i don't think instrumental reasons for leisure should be the only ones that they are real like you are actually going to um produce more at a higher standard if you're working sufficiently short hours to allow for rest and recuperation and just you know to not have to think of your work as this like aggravating, oppressive force in your life because you have space around the edges. Um, there's actually really interesting work on the psychology of writers, just to take my personal <laughs> example, that like if you can keep the large projects of your, of your writing life as, as only moderate parts of your timetable, you actually make much more progress on them because they don't become these things that trigger huge amounts of psychodrama and procrastination and, and, uh, Mm. you know, where the sort of the the thing inside you that just wants to be free refuses to do any more work on the project because, uh, it's, it's sort of dominating your life. If it doesn't dominate your life, you actually make more progress on it. Plus, you know, yeah, if you're exhausted and not thinking straight, then, then you're going to work slower and things are going to go wrong. Um, and obviously, you know, this This requires people at every level to both, you know, be willing to let, be willing to be okay with people they manage not, not being present at their desks or available online past a certain time or as much as, or for quite as many hours as, as previously. It also requires all of us who are doing the rest. So and leaders should certainly model that, I think, but like it it requires all of us to realize that it's not going to feel great at the beginning. That, this is the, one of the weirdest paradoxes that I've kind of had to embrace in a personal way. It's like, if I think it's right to spend a little more part more of my life, you know, relaxing, reading a novel, uh, going on a stroll... I'm gonna to have to accept that for the first part of that time it it's actually gonna feel like I I'm gonna feel like I ought to be doing something else. And you'd have to sort of just ride that discomfort for a while to get through to the part of the experience that is so sort of uh richly rewarding. And yeah, it's this strange logic you say, that when we're when we're very, very busy and overwhelmed, that's exactly when we need the rest. It's that mm. some famous old anecdote is coming to my mind about the a uh, meditation teacher who says like you have to meditate for twenty minutes a day, and the student says, "But what when I'm what 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 about when I'm too busy?" And the teacher says, "Well, then you need to meditate for thirty minutes a day, right?" It's like <laughs> it's like it's true. It embodies a deep truth, but it but it's not a truth that is comfortable to enact. And I think getting to a handle on that, right? The fact that we're all a bit workaholic in the modern era, in maybe not all, but lots of us who are not necessarily classic workaholics. And, and even if we, it would be okay for us to get up and leave our work behind at 6 p.m. instead of 8 p.m., we kind of don't want to. We'd rather keep trying to push through to this mythical point where we can say, it's all done. <laughs> and since that's never yeah. happening, um, we, we need to learn to, to step away at a time when it isn't all done. I think one of the
1: stories a lot of us tell ourselves about our experience with rest in the workplace is that, like you know, there's the, um, you know, one day in the future. And I know you've sort of written about that, like you know, there will be time one day, you know, or when this thing's done, I'll have time to do this. And I know one of my dreams is to is to sit down and write a book. And the way I kind of always picture it is that it's going to be like. Um, love actually, I'm gonna go out um, to some you know place in Italy down by the water and spend three months you know writing writing the book and it's, or I'll go on some sort of writer's retreat in order to do it where it's yeah. like in reality it's like that's pro- like you said, it's like if it becomes my identity, then it comes with all these other t- sort of pieces of pressure and um, baggage associated with it as opposed to just writing 300 words a day at the moment. In order to write the book, as opposed to making it this huge, big dream in the future,
0: right? Absolutely. I think that thing about, and I really feel this—that sort of like, oh, a beautiful setting for three weeks. I'm going to totally nail this. And it's like you could not put worse pressure on yourself uh, to uh, in that context. And then not just writing 300 words a day. And I think this applies beyond writing, by the way. I think it applies to lots of new way, new things that we want to that, that we want to implement or behavioral change and all the rest of it not just that you only need to do 300 words a day but that really in terms of what you can actually control in the present you just need to do 300 words like Mm. once like today the same goes for any kind of priority that you've been neglecting whether it's a creative work or a certain aspect of of work in an organization or nurturing a certain relationship or friendship in your life, right? You can really stress yourself out unnecessarily by saying that from now on, you're going to do something about this every single day. Really, you just need to do something about it once and then take it from there. Uh, So I think that's a really important sense in which the the desire to cultivate better habits and better systems and practices can actually get in the way of just, just doing the thing in question.
1: So I guess as we move on from some of these things where it's about maybe the the manager and the employee and how we're currently experiencing our work, one of the other I think you know big shifts that I thought was really interesting with how I was interpreting your work is also about I guess the environment that we place ourselves in in order to feel like we are living a fulfilling life, and you know one of, one of the biggest trends that we're seeing at the moment is this idea of the workplace and like where people are working from and. There was a moment in your book, um, you have a chapter where you were writing about sort of the the happiest person in the world who sort of lives on this cruise ship and has created a lifestyle where all of the mundane tasks are no longer you know, a worry for that person. And then you connected that story to the idea of digital nomads and how they're really looking to like remove themselves from the system in order to control more of their time. And I think both of these are examples of people who wanted greater freedom and control, but like kind of remove themselves from a part of society in order to achieve what they were wanting and to maybe increase their happiness in their eyes. And I wonder what you think about, I guess, the workplace as a, as a system, you know, going into an actual workplace, even if it means that we have to deal with some of the more mundane tasks like commuting or chit chat in the office or just like all the little things that maybe working from home or being a digital nomad is kind of removing for us. Do you feel like being part of that actual
0: physical workplace system is actually good for us? I think it really is. And by the way, you're referring there to a short film called The Happiest Guy in the World. It's a, the guy who lives on the cruise ship. It's a darkly ironic title uh, that the filmmaker gave it because He's not happy, right? I mean, uh, or maybe, as I say in the book, maybe he is, I can't quite tell, but I can easily tell that I would be deeply miserable in this supposedly perfect life that he's uh, created for himself. And the same with digital nomads. It's this wonderfully freeing possibility that then seems to lead to a lot of loneliness. I think there's all sorts of evidence to suggest that being held in certain kinds of collective rhythms and rituals uh, of which... Showing up in the office for most of every weekday or several weekdays a week or something is is a sort of archetypal one. But there are all sorts of benefits uh, to this. I write in the book about the Swedish workplace tradition of the fika, which is a sort of coffee break that happens at the same time of day in uh, for everybody in a workplace in in lots of Swedish workplaces. And again, it's like it's the sameness of that time that the fact that you don't have so much choice about when it happens. It's not really compulsory, but it's kind of expected. All these things are help create um, all sorts of benefits, like just the benefit of talking to other human beings, the benefit of uh, serendipitous creative ideas, uh, the the benefit of you know the janitor getting to exchange words with the CEO, and therefore mainly maybe um, you know surface some interesting important issue in the organization that wouldn't otherwise be come to the attention of the of the leader um all sorts of ways and i, I mean like you know i'm dancing with hypocrisy here because obviously i don't uh, work uh, myself day to day in a corporate or an office context with other people but i do find that other aspects of my life where i have rhythms that i don't necessarily get to to choose right certain kinds of collaborative work that i do when i'm putting together things for radio programs and things, and then just the collaborative rhythms of family life where I don't get to choose uh, exactly when to pick my son up from school because you'd have to do it at school pickup time, right? All these different all these different ways to the extent that I do have them in my life, they I find this in a deep personal way, right They're very beneficial in all these ways. Now, at the same time, family-friendly workplace policies, work from home, flexibility seems to me to be have a lot of very strong benefits. And so I think a lot of it is not to do with um, kind of saying, okay, collective structures are the only way forward, so we have to get rid of all our um, flexible pandemic-era workplace policies and everyone just has to come in between these hours. That's got all plenty of downsides to... To that as well, I think it just is this recognition that um, there are real benefits to collective synchronization of anything we do in life, including mm. work, even when it 's not the kind of work where it 's obvious, like you know certain manufacturing contexts you have to be coordinated, you still benefit from it in in knowledge work and offering opportunities for it uh. Uh, you know, establishing certain incentives for it. I think people come to if it's done in that way, as opposed to sort of imposed in an oppressive fashion. People people will come to feel the benefits of it, right? People people like being. Uh, I mean, I haven't got data on this, but my sense from people I've spoken to people people who are coming in a few days a week to work in sort of hybrid situations, by and large, look forward to those. Days, Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, except maybe if you're occasionally going on some sort of strange isolated meditation retreat in a cabin in the mountains, we don't want to spend our, our days, uh, interacting with, with nobody. Um, so I think really seeing it as something that's beneficial for the people doing it as opposed to just something that, you know, organizations feel they need in order to have visibility on what people are up to and stuff like that is, is a really important starting point.
1: It it really is one of the, the the hottest topics when it comes to I guess workplace trends right now. There's like if you go on Twitter today, there is very prominent kind of leaders and and VCs and other people saying you know the work from home experiment is over, right. like bringing bringing people back. Like this isn't yeah. working. This is not yeah. how you grow a company. And then you've got some of them even can't. own Twitter. They don't just say it on Twitter, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I think I've gone nearly, um, I think I've gone the entire series of this show without ever saying that person's name, which I think right. is um, No, need to, no <laughs> need to
0: change that now. <laughs> um,
1: and then, you know, then there's other people who are like, no, like w- we have technology, we have systems where this is working. And, you know, I guess to personalize this, um, you know, I recently moved to Melbourne um, and that's where Coltramp's largest office is um, globally. And, That's a big shift for me because the last three years I was like a remote employee in the US and in different parts of the world and was working from wherever I sort of found myself due to different circumstances. But now I sort of have this choice where it's like I can go into the office a couple of days a week and I can also do deep work, you know, things like research for the podcast at home. And I'm really experiencing that I actually, like you said, I kind of benefit from that. Like I love that I've got solitude to get work done when when I need it, but also I experience a lot of joy from the relational aspect of working side by side with people and knowing that experiencing joy and meaning is also about experiencing other people's wins and hearing about what other people are working on. So for me personally, I love the idea of having access to both and but I know for many people they're not really getting that choice.
0: Yeah, no, it's difficult and it's sort of there's a built-in paradox that one sort of needs to acknowledge I think, which is that if it's all entirely choice-based then it doesn't really do the job, right? Part of part of what makes um, the things we're talking about, the Fika, or just or the religious traditions of Sabbaths, or or anything like that, like there has to be some level of you don't get to choose. Otherwise, people do it at all different times of day, and it and it doesn't synchronize at all. So, yeah, it's a thorny issue because it's a sort of a question of saying. Um, uh, in this organization, to this extent, we're actually going to remove a little bit of choice here, but it's sort of for your own good, and that definitely resonates in an awkward way. I think the place to begin is by understanding how it can benefit individual employees right rather than just being a way that managers and leaders indulge their insecurity about letting that happen i don't I don't in some of the more sort of strident um Okay, the experiment has failed kind of statements. You kind of think like well, that you see no particular um sense that the per, that the person making those comments is saying like um uh we' we'll all be happier as an organization if we change it's like like I just can't bear anymore not knowing what people are doing or f- wondering if they're like taking advantage of me or something
1: i've got um One more topic that I was reflecting on when it comes to some of the big societal shifts that I think you've got some interesting takes on. And then I kind of wanted to finish with this idea of embracing our finitude and advice you have for people. But um, I saw recently that you've started a series with the BBC on convenience. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to uh, reflect on, I guess, two of the significant shifts that we're seeing in society when it comes to this idea of convenience. We have we have the gig economy that's promising that it's going to be making our life easier and it's allowing us to outsource things that, you know, we don't want to do to others or things that are just we could do, but like there's someone else who could do it for us. And then, you know, that's requiring real humans in order to you know make our life more convenient. And then, from a technology perspective, I guess what we're seeing is this whole idea of AI dominating the the media landscape right now. With this idea that AI will allow us to take all the stuff we don't want to do, and spreadsheets, mm. and writing, and all this other stuff, and just make us more efficient. And I'm wondering about your take on whether removing some of these tedious things from our life does. Are, are there unintended downsides to to this convenience that we're
0: experiencing? Yeah, I mean that's very much the the sort of thesis of the of the radio uh, series is this idea that we don't really know what we're doing. We, we, we think we're just smoothing away things that we don't want to do. And then we realize subsequently that actually we, we kind of did want some of them. Uh, a lot of what we think of as friction in life is actually, uh, talking to other human beings instead of ordering food on an app or it is, um, it's walking to the, I don't know, to the post office. And in that, walk, getting to sort of reflect on the work you've been doing and come up with some interesting ideas. Whereas if you could do the whole thing just by straight after you, you know, just sitting at your desk, you wouldn't get those, those sort of important breathing spaces. Um, it's kind of caring for other people. Uh, I give the example in the book of, um, of, uh, using those services where you, um, where you realize you're too late to send someone a birthday card on the other side of the world. So you so you like design it on a website and then they then they mail it locally. And it's fine, sure, better than nothing. But like actually it always leaves a little bit of a bad taste in the mouth because <laughs> actually the inconvenience of going and buying a card and writing it and doing it all in time to send it, some part of that is is an expression of our care for the other person. So in all sorts of ways, I think it's very easy to think of you know inconvenient things is just something anyone would obviously want to remove and then actually there's there's all sorts of of downsides to doing so i mean the ai topic is just like goes off in so many different directions um if you believe some of the worst predictions for what the ai is going to do to the human race then um, then the idea that it might take away some some valued inconveniences from our lives seems like small fry but if we I do think that, um, that just to, to stay on that level, there are obviously going to be all sorts of unintended consequences on that on that mundane level. If I just to pick an, just to use current AI, right? If I can get the sort of skeleton of some document I want to write automatically generated by ChatGPT, and then I am going to go into that and and finesse it and put it into my own voice. Like there are tons of people offering like dodgy online courses now telling you how to do exactly that, right? You can, you get all your content written automatically and then you just sort of finesse it a bit. But who knows what sorts of, uh, unconscious, important, creative things are and satisfying things are happening in that phase that is being, is being eliminated. You know, I always think as a, as a reporter, as a, as a, as an interviewer, as the, guardian one of the things i would often do is like record a kind of hour-long interview with somebody and then go back and transcribe it and um uh these days people sometimes are very surprised at the idea that you would personally transcribe something because it can be done either automatically or or cheaply by another human And I have sometimes used those services too, just to be clear. But actually, there's something really important that happens. I know a lot of journalists, interviewers who transcribe their own interviews because there's something happens that's important when you're listening back to it, typing it out, and you're sort of thinking about the structure of the piece. So yeah, I think there's all sorts of ways in which getting parts of our processes handled for us by AI could eliminate things that we didn't realize we we wanted to eliminate. We didn't realise that we didn't want to eliminate until until they were gone.
1: Yeah, I think there'll be plenty more to come on that subject in terms of, I guess, how it impacts what we're working on and the decisions that we're kind of making. And yeah, like you know, you you don't want to lose the meaning from the work as well, which I think is something that we've discussed. Is that you know what you work on, how you choose to work on things, but also the meaning associated with what you're working on is is really critical as well.
0: Right. I mean, maybe one day I could get to the point where I could, uh, you know, have my email newsletter and my books completely created by artificial intelligence and i don't have to have anything to do with them i can just go and lie on a beach i personally would be devastated like that that is not that's not the goal i'm going for here to to not get to engage with the ideas now i know that's a specific thing to me as a as a writer but um but i think it applies in lots of contexts it's like we're doing this for some reasons that are not just the outputs well even in in my role, I think one of the things that's really unique
1: is that I have all these different inputs when it comes to what I'm sort of seeing, reading, and researching about workplace culture and, and what's playing out. And it would be very easy for me to outsource to a you know like a, a website where you pay a, a dollar per hour for someone to do mm-hmm. your research for you, or even I could have you know put in to chat ChatGPT um, what are fifteen good questions to ask Oliver Berkman about no, this subject, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. But yeah. I would have lost all of the joy I got from doing all the research and trying to work out how to contextualize parts of this interview for what I'm seeing in the workplace. So, right, you know, I think you know, the craft of work is something that we should always hold really special.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah.
1: So I know in your book you do have these, I guess, um, ten tools for embracing our finitude. Was there any one of those in particular that stood out to you that you think helps us in the workplace context of like, I was even thinking about you know, the idea that like there's always people who might um, read or listen to your book and be like, I can't believe I can't work at all the places I want to work or, or the idea of I've picked the wrong career and I don't have enough time to go do the career that I want to do. Was there any of those around embracing your finisher that you think are more relevant to the workplace compared to our personal life?
0: Sure, yeah, I mean, I think one that springs immediately to mind, and as I say in the book, it, again, this is partly something I uh, found from Cal Newport's work and then sort of melded with my own uh, outlook is what I call in the book a fixed volume approach to to productivity um broadly speaking, whether you're planning your day or planning your organization's quarter or whatever it is, this is a an approach that 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 says first of all, how much time do I have available uh, for work or for a certain kind of work? Um, And then secondly, given that volume constraint, what are the most important things to do with that time? So this is a, uh, again, just to pick it personally, I might say, you know, I I have maybe four hours in the day when I can meaningfully do certain kind of high focus creative work and maybe a few more when I can do other kinds. Given those sort of mental boxes, which might be literal boxes on a calendar, what can I then? Uh, what's most important to fit into that time? It sounds kind of like, well, how else would you do it? But of course, I think most of the time we do do something else, which is we we ask ourselves what needs doing today, this quarter, this year, and then we just sort of go hell for leather in an attempt to get it done. And that brings you straight back into all the problems of you know, there's more than you that to do then you'll have time for. Uh you'll generate more things to do as a result of working on them. And that very sort of, you know, this is our this is my capacity for today or for this month. This is um uh an organization's capacity. Let's drop into that diagram based on our best estimates, uh understanding that it's very, very, very easy to underestimate how long things will take. Let's drop into our diagram what, what makes the most sense to work on in that time and then we can see where the trade-offs are and we can deal with them and maybe we have to renegotiate some commitments and maybe we have to steel ourselves to letting down that person because we've decided to focus on the goals that came from this person or whatever it whatever it is you're bringing into consciousness what is already true which is that you know you are only going to work for a certain amount of time today on a certain amount of things and it's very difficult to sort of express the feeling of this but there is a kind of a shift that goes from i'm totally overwhelmed and i'm panicking and i'm just trying to sort of flailing my limbs about in the hope that i can stay above water to a kind of engagement with the situation might still be bad might still be a difficult season of your life might still be a difficult season of a company's life but you're Engage with it and you're picking up pieces of it and dealing with them and then they're dealt with you know and it's a completely different mm. orientation that uh, to the same situation
1: so i wanted to close out the conversation um i guess with you have these really powerful questions uh at, at the end in terms of how to meditate on our own existence and there was one that i think stood out to me just because of i guess how i see it play out in the workplace and there was one that you wrote, which is, um, you know, are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that are impossible to meet, and how this impacts our, you know, ability to, you know, to even think about happiness and whether we're, you know, are we working on on the right things? And the reason why I think it was important to meditate on personally is also because I actually feel like the word standard is something that in organizations isn't always clear. And that's where a lot of this idea that like, are we spending our time well, they, you know, the gap can increase because the organization hasn't got a really clear standard on what success looks like. So it's nearly impossible for an individual to meet it if it's not clearly met, if there's no performance metrics, there's no goals. And I think one of the, the um, I guess, trends in this space is this idea of job creep where people have you know crept into a different role by accident yet they're Mm -hmm. still being measured on this standard that is somewhere else. And I just wanted to sort of bring it up because I really feel like maybe one of the things that um, leaders who are listening to this can really take away from this is to reflect on that question for yourself by are you judging yourself by the standards of productivity that are impossible to meet, but also by accident or on purpose is this actually impossible to meet inside of your company because you haven't had conversations around what success looks like and whether people are working on the right things or not? And is some of this feeling of discontent actually because of this mismatch right now? So I just wanted to sort of, I guess, close the conversation with that reflection because I've I read it for me personally, but I also saw it play out in organizations.
0: Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, I don't have an awful lot to, to add to what you've said there, but I think it's... Um one thing i suppose is that right the feeling that there are standards that must be met but that you don't know what they are and they're not clear enough to meet is this most sort of crazy making thing you can you can suffer in that context i think that um part of the reason that standards may remain unclear is because there are kind of unacknowledged trade-offs there that people don't want to face and say well if we're going to meet this standard in this domain we're going to have to accept this lower standard in this other domain um and so by keeping them vague you can continue to as a as a manager as a leader you can continue to uh trick yourself into believing that somehow by the end of this quarter or something you know we're going to find that all these things have have worked so it's it's when things are unclear there's usually some positive reason why they've been kept unclear I think and it uh, can only help us all to to uh, lean into that ask, ask a few more questions and get a bit more clarity. Well I, I
1: must say I think um, your work is uh, very, very timely for the conversations we should be having about the workplace as well as obviously what's been happening over the last few years in terms of where are where are we working from? Are we making the right decisions? Who are we spending time with? How do we wrestle with this idea of finitude as well as, um, you know, everything that that's possible? So I know that your books really helped me a lot as I flip that coin between finding beauty in the everyday and also this. Uh, existential dread of am I living up to my own expectations and, and living the best life so I know it's really helped me and um that your content has been really well received by you know the tramp and culture first community so I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast
0: today and is there any closing thoughts or remarks that you wanted to leave with the audience no I mean that's just to say that that's wonderful to hear and it's kind of like yeah for the, in terms of the meaning of my own work that's that's where it all comes from it's just great to have the sense of articulating things that that people have already been thinking in an unarticulated way perhaps and and uh sort of sharing the the uh slightly absurd journey of uh, human existence in a more you know in a, in, a, in that way yeah no thank you very much i've really i've really enjoyed the conversation yeah amazing thank you so much for joining me today thank you
1: i hope you enjoyed my conversation with oliver berkman At the start of this episode, I gave you a challenge. Were you able to listen from start to finish? It's okay if you didn't. As I reflect on that challenge and on this conversation, I'm left thinking about where does a book like 4,000 Weeks get placed in a bookstore? My opinion is that Oliver wrote a book that doesn't deserve to be added to the self-help or productivity section. Because for me... I find that this work is more like philosophy and poetry about our relationship with ourself, our decisions, and how to spend our time on this planet. So while the title of the book was about time management, that's not the takeaways that I had. My biggest takeaway is that it's about where and what we pay attention to, which in my opinion is one of the only things we truly ever have control over. Over the last few episodes, for everyone who's made it to the very end, and congratulations if you have, I've been putting together some actionable takeaways for you, and here's what I've got for today's episode of Oliver. During your next one-on-one, whether you are the leader of the conversation or a participant, I'd encourage you to have a conversation about this concept of clearing the decks. What is the work that you're consciously or subconsciously spending a lot of time on that's just never going to get completed? The example that we spoke about in the episode was the email inbox. The only reward for answering emails quickly is the expectation that you can handle more emails and reply quickly. So I'd encourage you to have a conversation about the expectations around how you're working and are there other high-value tasks that you'd love to be focused on if you're able to come to an agreement about how much time you should be spending clearing the decks. I want to thank Oliver for his writing and for spending some of his 4,000 weeks on this planet with the Culture First community. I've been your host Damon Klotz, and the Culture First podcast is brought to you by the team here at Culture Amp, the world's leading employee experience platform. Learn more about Culture Amp by heading to cultureamp.com. We believe in creating a better world of work. If that's important to you too, then please subscribe and leave us a review to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. And that more people can be part of this culture-first community that we're building together, where we're trying to share stories that inspire us all to create a better world of work.